Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Stabby Snippets here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, Jessica, one of your hosts, and as always, I am joined by my beautiful gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. So today we're going to be talking about the case of Susan Galvin, which, by the way, is the oldest cold case that was solved using genealogy. It was 52 years. That's amazing. Right? I'm super excited. This is the case that if you've been following us, we had the technical difficulty on. So this is round two. So I hope you guys enjoy it because it's always a sad story because it's a cold case and someone for 52 years that was unsolved. But I'm glad it ended with the family getting some closure. Yeah. So this story is about Susan Galvin, and she was 20 years old in 1967, and she had recently moved to Seattle. And I say like recently, it had been like about a year or so to Seattle from Spokane, Washington. She accepted an administrative position job as a record clerk. I should say a graveyard shift record clerk for the Seattle Police Department. Gotcha. When Susan moved, she left behind her her siblings and her parents. She had seven siblings in total. One of them was a sweet little boy by the name of Chris, and he was six in 1967. He'll come into the story later. I just want to give you like how old he was at that particular point in time. So on Sunday, July 9th, 1967, Susan was scheduled to work a graveyard shift at the Seattle Police Department, but was a no-call, no-show. She had failed to show up for several days. Susan's body would eventually be found on July 13th, 1967 in an elevator in the parking garage at 300 Mercer Street in Seattle. And this parking garage, just so that everyone knows, because I had this moment where I was like, wait a tick. How did she disappear on July 9th, which was a Sunday, but then her body was found on Thursday. Like, that seems like an awful long time. It's because this particular parking garage was attached to the Seattle Center, which is where, like, a few years before, they had had the World's Fair. This is also where the Space Needle is. And this is one of those, like, weekend-only parking structures. I don't know if it still is or if it's still there, but at the time, it ran Thursday through Sunday night. That makes sense. I've seen those. I feel like when I lived in Colorado, there was some like that for sure. So that would make sense. Yes. And it would make sense why they would just be finding her. And if the parking structure wasn't in use, even security wouldn't have like checked the elevators because who would be in them? 
they would just be checking probably stairwells and stuff like that. Right. I'm sure cases like this, though, have changed that for probably how they do things. They probably have them do like a quick, you know, perimeter and go through and stuff. I would hope. Right. Well, like one of my thoughts was like, why wasn't it like checked right before the end of the shift? Like, why weren't all the elevators inspected? But who knows? Like, there's a lot of speculation of how it could happen. But yeah, we don't know. Just so that you know, Susan spent a lot of time in this particular area. She had like photo albums full of like tons of pictures of her below the Space Needle. She really, really liked this particular area of Seattle and she spent a lot of her free time in it. The original theory was that she had been at the Seattle Center and was actually leaving to go to work. If she's a graveyard shift, so it would have been towards the end of the day, like the evening time. They believed she was attacked while she was leaving and heading off to work. When the police dug further, they discovered that Susan had been sexually assaulted and raped, and cause of death was strangulation or suffocation with an unknown object. The police would point fingers early on. Basically, they started, like, asking everyone, and who found her were these two sailors. And the issue with the two sailors was they recognized her because they had seen her on Sunday. So, like, unbeknownst to them, they had given... The Seattle Police Department thought like, well, if you saw her on Sunday and that's the last time anyone saw her and they would know that that was the last time anyone had seen her because she didn't show up to work, you know, and I'm sure people probably like went to her house or called her because, you know, if you don't show up for work, they typically call you. And this was 1967. So there wasn't cell phones. So it wasn't like they could find where she was. Yeah. So the police thought they had a lead. The two sailors ended up really quickly being let go because they just, there wasn't enough evidence to point that they were there. They had said that they saw her at the Seattle Center, which, I mean, it has a huge naval port there. So it would make sense that these guys, if they were young, they would hang around down there because it seemed to be the place where young people hung out. Well, the police got another lead and Tara's not going to like this lead. (laughs) Susan had been seen earlier that day with a professional clown by the name of Punchy. No. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Punchy was a clown at the local food circus, which was like a supermarket type place. And then Punchy worked there. And I don't know, probably provided entertainment for children my parents shopped. I don't really know. But it seemed like they were friends and they had been seen like several times together. So I don't think this is one of those like weird things where like the clown was stalking her. I think it was more of like, hey, that's my friend Punchy type situation. Okay. I don't know what Punchy's real name is because they've done a really great job of not telling anyone. So at first I was like, this is highly suspect, but this is 1967. This is before clowns became like a really big like mania type thing. Also, I thought it was suspicious that shortly after, we're talking within days or weeks of Susan's death, Punchy quit his job and fucking moved out of state. Oh. Bye, Punchy. Mm, Okay. You're very sus-sus. Mm-hmm. So then because Punchy was their only real lead, it just went dormant. And so Susan's case slowly turned into a cold case. And like many cold cases, anytime any kind of new technology came out, this was kind of the case that the Seattle Police Department like brought out to try to see if they could get something. It probably had a lot to do with like she was one of their own. You know, she was a records clerk. So they probably were like, we need to solve this. She was one of us. Right. So they would bring out her case. Well, this happened like so we're talking 1967 is when she died. There wouldn't be a break in the case or a new break in the case until 2002. 
That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. To leave you with a cliffhanger, we're going to take a quick moment and hear a word from our sponsor. Roses are red, violets are blue. Get Manscaped as a gift for V-Day and he'll say I love you. Our friends at Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, are here to give you the perfect gift for the men in your life. Can't think of what to get him this year? Get the gift that's for you and for him. Because I have a story, guys. It didn't happen to me. It happened to a friend of mine. And it's actually like a reversal of gender here, guys. So I had a friend who was dating a woman and he decided to go downtown. And when he came back, he had uh, hair in his teeth. So I immediately made the same noise that Tara said when he told me this story. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I was like, if a guy ever had that situation and his downtown Mr. Brown, I would be like, no, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. My husband, he's very manscaped. And now he uses manscaped. So I definitely think that you should have the clean workspace. Yeah, yeah. They got some great stuff that you could use. Like the Perfect Package 3.0. It is led by their revolutionary third-generation lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. Very nice. And to go with that very nice, the Perfect Package will also come with a pair of Manscaped boxer briefs that will keep your junk feeling fresh all day. It's time to upgrade those old boxers to this new-new. And truthfully, they're such soft material and probably the most comfortable thing ever. They are. I love mine. I love mine. So, you know, anyone can wear them for sure. Mm-hmm. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPOOKEDGIRLS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code SPOOKEDGIRLS. Happy Valentine's Day from Manscaped. <laughs> So in 2002, right, the the new evidence that was broken, it was DNA. And they realized that they could extrapolate the DNA from her clothing that they couldn't do way back then. So they they took it out. But at this point in time, this is like when, you know, comparing it like details was like really kind of fresh, right? And they pulled it out of the clothes and they ran it against the databases they had and nothing, Zero, not a goose egg. So they're like, fuckity fuck fuck. <laughs> what are we going to do? And they basically had a DNA profile. They had the killer's DNA, or at least, if not the killer, at least the person who sexually assaulted her. But I do believe that it was not just like semen. I think they had other types as well. Yeah. And so nothing could come of it until 2016. And a new detective came onto the case. And his name was Detective Rolf Norton. And like, he's the kind of guy who like comes in and is like, well, I'm going to fucking solve this shit. Like everyone stand back. This is going to be this is going to be the case that I'm going to do. And that's what he did for Shizzle. But not quite yet. Uh, Because they had the DNA profile and they didn't have anyone to run it against, Rolf was like, you know what? What we really should do is we should track down this punchy guy and see if the DNA matches him. Because if he was the suspect, why don't we just run it against him? So they tracked him down to Utah. Punchy gave his DNA, which I was like, okay, if he willingly gave his DNA, he probably is like not the suspect. (laughs) Right. Let's be real. He's not the perpetrator. So they ran it in the DNA for Punchy didn't match the DNA found on Susan. So that meant he was in the clear. This left Detective Norton with like this big like hole. Like, what do I do? Like, this was my idea. Because I think this is what like I 
I don't know, but like my theory is, it's like Detective Norton was like, I got it. We'll run it against Punchy and we'll catch the motherfucker and then we'll lock his ass up. And, you know, because at that point in like 2006, 2017, which is around that time, they would have been like, yeah, we got him. Not so much. But with one of my favorite cases out there right now, the Golden State Killer, with him catching Joseph D'Angelo because of DNA evidence through genealogy mapping, like that kind of DNA mapping, Norton was like, why the fuck not? Let's do this. So he turned to DNA mapping to help him solve the case. So he got the DNA profile and he contacted a woman by the name of Cece Moore. And she's a genealogist. And I think she's like a forensic genealogist, if that makes sense, which it would have to be because it's forensic work. Mm -hmm. He got that. And with her, he sent the DNA profile off to a company called Parabon Nanolabs or GEDmatch Labs, and they had several pop up, right? There was at least two distant cousins with a 2% DNA match. So Moore took this DNA matches and began to connect them together, building out family trees until she found where these two distant cousins had, like, a common ancestor. That's what's going to bring them together. Okay. She found a man that was born in 1826 in Kentucky and a woman that was born in 1837 in Missouri. They basically were like the common ancestors. They got married and had children and continued on. And so she tracked this person down till they found someone in Seattle. So this made me think of mine. And so I went and did it. And I found someone in, because with, I use um, Ancestry.com. And when you go on there, they have DNA matches that you can use. And it'll give a list. So like, I have my first cousins, like I know who they are, I see them. And then I have this one cousin who's like really distant. We're not like that related. And the username is G-A-R-A-H-1-S. So if that's you, we are related. We have a common ancestor by the name of Talitha Gunter Deeds. And basically, this person is related to her by her this woman's first marriage. And I'm related to this person by their second marriage. And she is my third great-grandmother on my paternal grandmother's side. She's back there a ways, right? This is how they did that mapping. They basically, like, if you were trying to find me, you could trace it down this way. Yeah. So this basically came down to a guy by the name of Frank Whippick. And at the time, um, in 1967, he was married. He had a kid. He had been in the Navy. And basically what happened is they tracked it to this guy named Frank. And they're like, okay, cool. We're going to, like, go find this guy, bring him in for questioning, do a DNA match. Well, there was a problem with that. Frank died in 1987. He died of complications due to his diabetes. They were like, fuck, what do we do now? So they went to the family of Frank, and I'm assuming like a child of his, and asked if they could run a DNA test to see if Frank's DNA would be a match. Because if it was a child, it'd have like half of his DNA markers so they could compare it, right? And so they do that, and they're like, definitely the family. And then Norton was like, to be 100% sure, we should probably exhume his body and do a DNA testing. The family was like, okay, let's do that. I think it was probably for them, they were blindsided by this. Because like, if I don't know, like at this point, I mean, they had like a two year, like, let's say they had a two year old, I can't remember how old the child was at the time. But like, could you imagine if like, suddenly, like you're 54 years old, and there's a knock at your door. And this guy is like, hey, I want to run DNA testing to see if your dad 
killed this woman in 1967? I'd have to know. Yeah, 100%. Like, I would just legitimately be like, okay, I got to know these facts. So that's what they did. They exhumed his body and the DNA was an exact match for him. And to me, that's insane. It is. The other issue with that is, is that like now the family has answers of like who did it, but they, they're they never going to know like the why of it. They're never going to be like, well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So in early 2019, that's when they did this. And then they came out and said, yes, they made like a big announcement. They held a press conference. They announced that they had solved this case. But unfortunately, because Frank has deceased, they cannot charge him because according to our laws, the person has to stay in trial, which I kind of was like, should I rabbit hole down this whole thing? Like, could there be a proxy for him? Like, could someone stand in and they run a trial through? But at this point, like, what are they going to do now? I mean, I think personally they should feed his bones to like something horrible. Yeah. Like into a volcano, you know, something like that. Agreed. <laughs> so because Frank can't face the charges the case will actually stay open it's like closed but there's no like it's complicated if that makes sense yeah it's like a technicality really at that point it's like they all know but yeah i gotcha oh a thousand percent a thousand percent but the good news for Susan's family, so I mentioned Chris earlier. So they held the press conference and Chris was there. And then later that day, they had like a little ceremony where they had taken the flag that was flying over the Justice Building in Seattle and they gave it to him in one of those flag presenting boxes. I don't actually know the technical name of that. And they gave it to him as kind of like a, like by no means going to make up for the, the loss of your sister and living 52 years without her. But like, here this is. And you know, the Galvin family has really been very generous. I mean, granted, they've had 52 years at that point to heal. And I think it's just probably a relief that they get to have an answer to like who did it. Not that they're ever going to know the what or why or how, but they just know the who. And, you know, sometimes that's enough for people to be able to move on. Yeah. So, you know, with that, this case is kind of closed. And I mean, it's just, to me, it's amazing that we live in a society now where, or live in a technological age, I should say, where we can solve these cases and give families, you know, answers. Like, this is what happened. Or not what happened, but this is who did this. And right, I know that there are people out there who are like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the genealogy because I don't want my DNA to be used against a family member. I'm really sorry, but like, I love my family, but if any of them committed a crime... And my DNA solves it. Like, one, I get first rights for the show. <laughs> Story's mine. <laughs> Bitches, back off. <laughs> Two, good. I hope it, like, I hope it catches them. Yeah, 100%. Don't kill people, people. Like, how hard is that? Right. I don't get it. I do not get it. Yeah. I think like with where things are now, like technology wise, we've already seen a bunch like within the last year. Mm -hmm. I think it's just gonna it's a trend that's going to continue on. And it just it makes me happy because it's like, while in this case, it's kind of like a bittersweet closure because it's like they don't get a full answer. At least they get Mm -hmm. something. You know what I mean? So they're not just they just never know forever, at least, you know. So I hope that helps somewhat. To them. Oh, totally. Like, I think it on some level, it must make people feel good because I mean, and granted for like for Frank's family, like that shit's like, can you imagine like have living all of these years and then suddenly like, because I mean, I'm sure shit started to add up. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, he got in trouble. <laughs> he did get in trouble for impersonating a police officer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He didn't get in, like, a lot of trouble for that, if that makes sense. Like, basically, they, like, arrested him and yeah. then they let him go. And then somehow the Seattle Police Department, like, lost his shit. And he was, like, charged, but never, like, nothing ever went past that. Mm. I don't know, like... Because Tara and I are doing other, another case right now that's in Seattle. I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, Seattle Police Department, what are you going to do? God, yes. Lots of ranting coming for that. <laughs> oh, yes. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back on Monday for another episode. And then if you're a patron, there's an episode coming out on Sunday. Yay. Bye, guys. Toodles. Toodles.